that you've enjoyed this series. Uh, I hope that you've been challenged during this series and that it has maybe challenged some of your assumptions, uh, some of your uh, standard ways of thinking about these issues, and uh, maybe has opened our minds a little bit uh, to the richness of the truth of God and how it applies to our life. Uh, I, I want to share at the front of today a little bit of political perspective in general. And I, I want to start by saying this. It's really easy for us to misplace our hope in the passing of a policy or the election of a candidate. That is to say that every year, every presidential election year, uh, I see a lot of people who are part of the church begin to lobby for a particular candidate with a, with a level of passion that makes me wonder that if that candidate is not elected, would, they, would their faith crumble or would they begin to doubt the will of God or the goodness of God? And, and any time that, that we place our hope in the election of a particular candidate or the passing of a particular policy, we have dramatically misplaced our hope as the people of God and as the church. Because as the church, our hope lies solely in the person of Jesus and the truth that he proclaims and his kingdom that is coming. And so hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. But because we have a tendency, and because it's so easy to place our hope in a particular policy or candidate, I have also seen this. The church sometimes has asked policy and government to do what, in fact, the church is called to do. And let me flesh this out a little bit. A lot of times we, we tend to think that if, if we vote or if you vote for a, this legislation that will care for the poor, then I don't have to go and care for the poor myself because I've asked my government to do it. And in that case, we have subcontracted out the calling of the church to the government. I know this is heavy and this is deep right at the beginning of the sermon. And it is only 10, 15 in the morning. So can you handle it? Are we good? Yeah. Go for it. I like it. I like that. I need more of that. <laughs> we have sometimes subcontracted out the calling of the church to the government. Uh, a lot of times if I vote, here's another way this plays out. If I vote in favor of legislation that would make abortion illegal, then I've done my part. And I no longer need to love the post-abortion woman who may be struggling with guilt and shame. Uh, because she's broken the law that I voted for and uh, didn't pass. But, but you get, I think you get the point. We, we sometimes delegate the work of the church and ask the government to do it. And this is, this is the most glaring reality or example of this, I believe, is on the issue of homosexuality. Uh, so far in this series, we have talked about gun control, We've talked about immigration, and today I want to talk to you about homosexuality. And when it comes to delegating the calling and responsibility of the church to government, this is no more, there's no better example than what, how the church has responded to this issue of homosexuality. The way this plays out is if I vote against, or in some cases for, legalizing gay marriage, then many Christians would believe they have done their part 
They have fulfilled the calling of the gospel. They have done their kingdom work and now can go about the rest of their business. And uh, this approach to living out the gospel is, is grievously mistaken. And it is personified by, by sort of a radical disengagement. That is to say that my calling in the church and as a person of God can be fulfilled in a ballot box. And I want to say this, the voting is good and you should vote and you should vote your convictions and you should vote in accordance with the kingdom of God because wouldn't it be great if the government aligned itself with the kingdom of God? But we shouldn't think for them to be the same thing. That to seek to vote for the government to align itself with the kingdom of God is in fact kingdom living. That's not true. It's a good thing and it's a positive thing when culture and government aligns with the kingdom of God. But we shouldn't feel like our our responsibility, our calling, our privilege as the people of God and as a church can be fulfilled in a ballot box. That is radical disengagement when in fact over and over and over what the scripture calls us to is radical engagement. We ought to engage culture where it's at and get involved in the lives of hurting people. And so what I want to do today is engage this topic of homosexuality. I want to engage it openly. I want to engage it honestly. And we need to understand and to realize that I can't talk about everything. Uh, I can't talk about every perspective on this important topic. Uh, but I want to share a lot of things with you today. And, uh, and so sit back, relax, or if you prefer, lean forward and listen. <laughs> and uh, and let's, let's walk through this together. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we confess our need for you. And Lord, as we have uh, tackled these difficult topics over the last few weeks, uh, you have been with us in tremendous ways, and we have felt your presence. And Lord, we would ask uh, for the same thing today, that as we tackle this topic, uh, Lord, that you would give us grace, that you would give us wisdom, and Lord, that the truth would challenge us, and at the very same time, it would lift us up and encourage us and give us hope. And so, Lord, be with us in these moments that we have together. Uh, Open our hearts, open our minds to your word and to your truth, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start by asking the question. Why is this such a big deal in our culture? Uh, I I can't listen to the radio. I can't watch uh, TV. I can't, uh, you can't hardly participate in any level of media without this topic coming up. And and, and so we have to begin with sort of the question of why is this such a big deal in our culture? Well, I I want to argue and I uh, I want to suggest to you today that there is a particular way that we form our identity as a culture that helps speak into this question of why this is such a big deal. 
And, and to do that, I want to, uh, I want to give you a, a formula. And I'm not big on formulas because typically speaking, they're, they're, very, they're, they're, they're way too broad to be true. But this formula, I think, has a lot of level of truth to it. And I, I want to give it to you. This is, this is how our, our culture tends to view um, This is how our culture tends to form identity uh, in our lives. And and it is this. We begin with desire. And desire leads to activity. And then activity leads to identity. That is to say that whatever my heart desires drives what I do. And in a culture where uh, doing stuff is, is how you gain your identity and your value, then of course it is our activity that drives who we are and our identity. The first question that we ask when we meet someone is, well, what do you do? What is your activity? What is the activity of your life by which you get paid? Because that defines who you are. Uh, that's primarily what we do in our culture. Uh, but when it comes not necessarily to our jobs, we move that same philosophy into the realm of every other realm of our life. And we say, whatever my desire is, I must answer and, and meet that desire through a particular activity. And then, of course, because I'm defined by what I do, that activity is equal to my very identity. That is the culture, that is the formula in which our culture uh, gains their identity. And so here's, here, this, of course, works for everything. And let me give you some examples. The desire might be for alcohol, or the desire might be to actually remove myself from reality, and I have found some sort of vice or substance or images to remove myself from reality. So the desire is, life is painful, I need to remove myself, and that can equal, it's, that can play out in any number of substances or images or whatever. So let's use alcohol as an example. I desire to gain or remove myself from reality to gain some measure of freedom. That means I, I, play, I find that in alcohol. The activity then is heavy drinking. And then the identity is I am an alcoholic or I'm a hungover teen or I'm a deadbeat person or, or whatever. You may not place it in, in terms of alcoholic, but I'm all of these things. So desire, activity, Identity. Desire might be, uh, I want more money. And, and so the driving desire of my life is I want more and more money. The activity then is I'm going to do whatever it takes to get more money. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, cut corners. I'm going to cheat. I may end up going to stealing in some way. If the driving desire of my life is more money, then the activity of my life is going to be defined by that. And then because I'm defined by my activity, ultimately I am defined by that as well, and so I end up having, the, having an identity of I am greedy. While we may not self-identify that way, other people will certainly identify us in this way as well. The lie then with this formula is this: I'll never be happy if the desire is never met. Right? If if desire equals activity equals identity. If if we go all the way back to the beginning and the desire, if the desire is not met, then ultimately I don't know who I am. I have this desire, but if I don't fulfill that, I'm lost and have no identity and I don't know who I am. And so the lie then is I'll never be happy if I don't have a drink 
make more money, make a name for myself, look at those images, etc., etc. Now, this also works the other way, and it can be good and positive. So, let me give you uh, a couple of stupid examples. My desire is to see frisbees flying long distances and then hearing the clanking of chains. And the only way to fulfill that desire is to go disc golfing. And so my desire drives my activity, defines my identity. I am a disc golfer. Can I hear an amen? From both of you who have ever tried it. Okay? This also, the desire is I want to be healthy or I want to have a life of health. That that drives our activity. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get up early in the morning and do the 30-day shred. Right? Huh? So we got one amen for the 30-day shred. So, you know, I'm going to get up early. I'm going to do Taibo. I'm going to do Insanity. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do whatever. Uh, So I'm going to eat right, desire, health, activity, this. The identity then is I live a life of health. I'm a healthy man or a healthy woman. So this works in both positive ways and then negative ways. And, And we actually do this all the time. We define our identity based on activity all the time in our culture. Because real men kill things like football and grunt. Right? That's the cultural message. If you like to kill things and you like football and you, and you grunt when someone tries to talk to you, you're a real man, you know? And, and that's defining identity based on activity. Real women, on the other hand, cook nice meals, birth babies, and drive a minivan. So all the witch ladies were like, what? <laughs> if the desires aren't there to form the identity, in other words, if I don't desire to birth babies or cook nice meals or a minivan, then all of a sudden we begin to question our identity. And so I must not be a real woman if I don't want to do that, or I must not be a real man if I don't like football. Okay. What happens is if you place this formula for gaining identity in a sexualized culture, you have an obsession with sexual identity, which is where we're at today in our culture. There's absolute obsession with sexual identity in our culture because we've taken this whole formula, desire, activity, identity, we've placed it in a context that is hyper-sexualized, and then, of course, the, the, the number one question is then, well, what is your sexual identity? Well, how, do you, how do you live yourself, how do you live out your sexual life? What are your sexual desires, which leads to the activity, which leads to some sort of identity? And, and the way this would play out then for, for someone struggling with same-sex attraction or someone who has self-identified as a homosexual, it begins with attraction. Right, I'm attracted to the same sex. That, of course, in this culture means I'm oriented in that particular way. We're going to talk about how the Bible has no lens to talk about orientation. But in our culture, it's attraction. This leads to my orientation, which is one of the primary questions in our culture right now. What is your sexual orientation, right? Well, if we're leading this particular formula of how we gain our identity, I've got to lead my activity based on my orientation. I find this attraction. That means I'm I'm oriented in another way. That means I have to act in a particular way. That means I am this particular person, which also leads to all of my associations. Are you with me? 
the camp in which I find myself. And so we live in a culture that is hypersexualized, obsessed with sexual identity, and, and building all sorts of different associations. So if you are in this association, and I'm in this camp, let's use the word camp, that's a little cleaner. If you're in this camp, and I'm in this camp, based on our attractions, orientation, activity, and all of these things, then what happens is we're at war with one another. Because we're not talking about just a part of our lives, we're talking about the core of who we are in our culture when it comes to sexual identity. If you don't agree, or if you have something to say, or if you have an opinion about my orientation, then actually you're fighting my very identity. And so we have all sorts of fights between camps. We have the camp over here being, being very, like the, the homosexual community tends to be very self-identified and very defensive. And then this group, let's not even talk about this group, anyone who's in the other camp, tends to be actually more offensive and actually more aggressive. Okay? And you have a fight between the camps. Because we're not just talking about a part of who we are. Because of the way we formed identity, we're talking about our very identity itself. And so that's how we've gotten to where we're at. So the obsession with sexual identity has brought homosexuality and same-sex attraction to the forefront of the political, personal, and spiritual realms. The question then that I want to address today is how do we think biblically about this issue? How do we think biblically about this? And uh, I, I want to talk about, I, I want to talk to all of you today. Um, I, I want to talk to you today if you are homosexual and have same-sex attraction. I want to talk to you today if you're heterosexual. I want to talk to you today if you're inside the church. I want to talk to you today if you're outside the church. I want to talk to everybody today. Because what we're going to find is the gospel gives us a dramatically new way of forming identity. So that we can talk about all kinds of things without talking about who we are. And we can actually gain strength by realizing who we are in Christ. So I want to talk to everybody today. How do we think biblically about this issue? The first thing that we need to realize is that the concern of the culture on this topic is not congruent with the concern of the Bible on this topic. We're hyper-concerned. And, and, and lots of, of people inside the church are, are wondering, man, culture and the church is like falling apart because this issue is becoming so forefront. Well, guess what? The Bible has very little to say about this. Where we have all kinds of things to say, the Bible actually has very little to say. And in fact, Jesus never talked about it in his ministry. In the three years that Jesus was doing ministry on the earth, he never talked about this issue. And so that's a wake-up call for some of us. That actually, the Bible has a lot more to say about how you handle your money than how you think about this issue. Ooh, it got tough all of a sudden, Right? Ouch. The Bible has a lot more to say about caring for the poor, about the kingdom of God coming, about prayer, and about finances than it does about this issue. But the Bible does have something to say. And a lot of Christians like to throw out Bible verses and use them sort of as ammunition against a gay lifestyle. And I want to look at each one of these verses this morning. I want to look at everything the Bible has to say about this topic. I want to walk through each verse. 
That's why I asked for a lot of time from the worship team. And I think this is going to be helpful to you as we listen to what does the Bible in its entirety have to say about this issue and how should we think about uh, this issue biblically and, and, and how can we actually realize that the, the real concern of our culture in many ways is not addressed in Scripture. But that's, that's where we're headed and uh, we are ultimately going to land somewhere. But let's, let's start with uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, verses, uh, Genesis, actually not Genesis chapter 1, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Uh, I want to read it. It'll be up on the screen as well, I think. There we go. Genesis 19. Hold on. Technology literally just crashed in front of my eyes. Here we go. We're back. Okay. Genesis 19, the first 11 verses. It says this. This is the uh, story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which many times is cited as uh, being anti-gay lifestyle. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up and, to meet them, and he bowed down with his face upon the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and you can spend the night and then go your way early in the morning. No, they answered, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and they entered the house. And he prepared a meal for them and baking bread without yeast and they ate together. But before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. And then they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we can have sex with them. Well, Lot went outside to meet them, and he shut the door behind them and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And then verse 8 is one of, those, one of those verses in Scripture that I just don't know what to do with. But it's there. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them whatever you'd like. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under my protection of my roof. So get out of our way, the men replied. They said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat him worse than them, for they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. And then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. Well, we, if we were to read on, we would learn that the story ends with both the city of Sodom and Gomorrah being utterly destroyed. And uh, many people have said, well, the city was destroyed uh, because of the homosexual activity in the city. And these, these men wanting to have sex with these other men that were in Lot's house. And uh, that's the real issue. And in fact, the city was destroyed because of that very thing. Uh, but the issue here is not, the, the issue here is actually an issue of rape. The, they, these men are wanting to force themselves on other men uh, for their own pleasure. That's called rape. And uh, any uh, 
gay person in our culture would say, well, I'm against rape too. I agree with this passage. This passage isn't about homosexuality per se as much as it is about the issue of rape. It is also true uh, that in Ezekiel, uh, where, where he is talking about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he lists the, the primary offense being of one, one of injustice in the city where uh, the people of God are not caring for the poor and the people outside the gate and all of that. So there's all kinds of wickedness going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But to say that this is about homosexuality per se is not good biblical interpretation. Okay? Leviticus 18, 22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Uh, Go on then to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. It says, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable and they are to be put to death and their blood will be on their own heads. Uh, Interpreting Leviticus can be very, very difficult uh, because Leviticus also has all kinds of other rules and regulations that were given to Israel that it could be very hard to determine which of those rules is effective in the New Testament era or the post-Christ era, it would be easy for the church to say, well, we like that one and we don't like that one. And so let's pick and choose which of the laws that we can say are true or not true. And in fact, anyone that is in this argument or in this discussion, in fact, brings up that very point. If you're going to say this is true, then you also have to take all the laws of Leviticus and say they are also true, in which case you also need to be put to death on account of this, 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 and this. Uh, One of the laws, for example, is that you can't wear mixed fabrics. And if you were to look at the tag of the shirt or clothing you're wearing, it is almost guaranteed that it is a mixed fabric. Um, So, That can be very difficult. Also, uh, the laws were given to benefit Israel as they were to be example and to differentiate themselves from other nations. So many people have argued this is simply a cultural uh, thing that, that, that God had given to Israel. It's no longer effective in the New Testament church. Also, the nation depended on growing numbers to thrive. And so it could be that... Uh, that this law was given for that very reason. So um, that, the interpretive part there can be very, very difficult as well. Let's move on to the New Testament then. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know, this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, or swindlers. That word always kind of makes me laugh. Swindlers. I don't know. It just, like, it just seems like an Old West kind of word. Uh, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, The main point of the passage seems to be, Paul says, this is who you were, but you're not that anymore. In Christ, this is who you are. Um, But let's, uh, let's look at some Greek. The word adulterers is the Greek word malakoi. Malakoi is a, is a word that was used to refer to the practice of men using young boys for sexual relations in ancient culture. And so um, I think all of us would agree that there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Uh, men using young boys 
for sexual relations. That's the word adulterers there. Uh, what, is, uh, what is interpreted in the new NIV as men who have sex with men, uh, in the old versions, uh, they just went to the most common cultural word to describe this, homosexuality. Um, but, but the reason they move to a phrase versus a particular word is because there's no Greek equivalent to our word homosexuality. In other words, there are Greek words that describe the same practice, but the word homosexuality didn't, come a, come, didn't even come into the English language until somewhere around the 19th century. And so the, so the Bible doesn't, there's not a like Greek this equals English homosexuality. That doesn't exist. Uh, but this phrase is the Greek word arsenikoitai, uh, which means literally lying with a male, and it's taken from a Hebrew phrase meaning that, lying with a male. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking a Hebrew phrase and then and putting that into Greek. This is the first time that Greek word is used, and it describes the practice of lying with a male. Um, if, if there were any kind of way to determine is Paul verifying the validity, current validity of the Leviticus law, it would be in this passage where he seems to be saying, seems to be giving credence that what was given in Leviticus is in fact um, to be used or to be recognized in a, in a church era world. Okay, so then 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11 as well. Um, We know that uh, the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and irreligious, and those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those who practice homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and, and for whoever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, again, the, Greek, the English word homosexuality is the same Greek word that he used, uses in 1 Corinthians, arsenikoitai. And so we have that used twice in Paul's letters uh, that seems to say, yes, this practice is, is something that is sinful according to the gospel, and the scriptures. But the real rub, are you still with me? Welcome to seminary, right? You guys didn't know you were coming to seminary today. Uh, The real rub is this, and the real discussion in our culture is this. Committed monogamous relationship between two adults of the same gender. That's the real rub. And so when it comes to Malakoi, the Greek word there, young boys being used as sex objects by older men, yeah, that's wrong when it comes to issues of rape. Yeah, that's wrong. And so do we have any passages of Scripture that can speak into the real rub today? And in fact, we do. Romans chapter 1. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. And I want to read to you verses 18 through 32. But see, a lot of times when we come to when we use these Bible passages, we, we they're really talking about something other than what people are talking about in our culture, the monogamous committed relationship between two same sex adults. Because there's also uh, if if someone were um, were were gay and having all kinds of sexual partners, then we have solid biblical ground to say, yeah, that's not the kind of lifestyle that God would intend for you. But we have to recognize that inside of the church, there are people that struggle with same-sex attraction and are doing and are living a godly lifestyle and, and, and trying to navigate the waters of what exactly 
does that look like? And we, have to, we just have to recognize that. Um, and, and so let's, let's look at Romans. Romans is going to be most helpful to us. Romans chapter 1, I want to start reading in verse 18 through 32 and, and hopefully kind of bring all of these ideas together to bring us some clarity about what the Bible really says in regards to this important topic. Okay, Romans, 18, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32, it says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven itself. All the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What does that say? God reveals himself in creation. Right? You want to know the beauty and the power and the majesty of God? Go to Rocky Mountain National Park. Just not on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but, but, but that's essentially what, what, what this passage is saying is, is God has revealed his glory in the creation. And so creation itself gives us a partial revelation of who God is. And then God is fully revealed to us in Jesus. God is fully revealed to us in Jesus. But God is partially revealed to us in creation itself. But then he goes on, he, he sets that as a, as a foundation. But then he goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's talking about everybody here. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over. In the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And so, what Paul is doing is he's saying God is, is revealed to us in creation. But in the foolishness of our hearts, what we have done is we have churned, and and rather than worshiping God as creator, as he is, we have actually churned that on ourselves and began to worship creation rather than creator. That's an easy mistake to do. That's the mistake of the garden. That's the sin of the garden. That is that if you were to take all the varieties of sin of which there are millions in our world and boil them down to their true essence. It's, it's missing God for who he is as creator and instead worshiping creation. What is, what is an idol? It's asking something, someone, or some substance to do what only God can do. And when we ask that thing or that other person or whatever to do what only God can do, they are an idol in our lives. That's what Paul is doing. He's setting up a theological context. So then, beginning in verse 26, he says this, Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lust. Because of this reversal, this, the, because, the, because of sin and the reversal of what we've done, because of this, God has given them over to their shameful lust. For even their women exchanged natural relations with, for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women. And were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. 
For they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil and greed and depravity, and they are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. And they are gossips and slanderers and God-haters and insolent and arrogant and boastful. And they invent ways of doing evil. And they disobey their parents and they are senseless and faithful and heartless and ruthless. Uh, Anyone encouraged yet? And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do so such things deserve death. For they not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. If you want good devotional reading at night before you go to sleep, maybe read that passage. What Paul is doing is he's setting up a theological context to give us the good news in Romans. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That where the, where, where the law of, of life has set us free from the law of sin and death, right? He, he sets up and he says, we are a broken people. We have traded in a love for God and who he is as creator. And we have turned our worship from him and to ourselves. And that plays out in any number of ways in our life. And the primary illustration that he gives is is he gives the illustration of, of homosexuality. In other words, homosexual acts are given as an illustration of humanity's spiritual condition. And that is one in where we have rejected the creator and we have worshiped ourselves instead. And to illustrate that truth, he says... These relations that were natural and set up in the garden between male and female have been traded for something different, for same-sex relationships. And then God's wrath is pictured as God giving them over to their own desires. Have you ever thought about God's wrath that way? It's like when when we choose to reject God and live in ways that will lead to destruction, the wrath of God is God saying, I'm going to give you up to those desires that are misleading you and leading to destruction because it's going to play out in destructive ways in your life. That's what ultimately is being said here. God's wrath is pictured as God giving people over to their own desires. And yet we live in a culture that fundamentally says whatever you desire is what you should do and that's who you are. And so Paul is saying, if you look around, you'll see the wrath of God being played out in people's lives as their lives lead to destruction. Are you with me? Paul is in a very particular theological context here. And so so homosexual acts are are given as an illustration of God's wrath and of, of humanity's spiritual condition. But let me say this. For this reason, this church upholds the truth that homosexual acts are sinful and that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. But we need to understand this church, what Paul is talking about. In Romans, in Timothy, in Corinthians, is not homosexual orientation, but homosexual action. There's a difference. There is a very strong difference in what is being condemned and declared as sinful 
is the act of homosexuality, not homosexual orientation. See, we're like, we're like drunk on orientation. But the Bible says nothing about orientation. Orientation and sexual orientation only came with the age of science where we, where we started like getting into our minds and, and thoughts and studying and kind of breaking ourselves apart. Paul is just like, if you act this way, if you do this act, if you, if you act in these ways, then that's sinful. There's no lens by which the Bible talks about orientation. It purely talks about action. And our tendency then is... But our tendency, because we're so drunk with orientation, is, that we're, is to look at anyone with same-sex attraction and condemn them based on the attraction. That is something the Bible does not do. But we tend to do that, don't we? We say, oh, you have, you have same-sex attraction. You're dirty and gross. Get away. And then we say to someone else, oh, you struggle with alcohol. Join a life group. Get involved. We'll help you with that. We'll come alongside of you. And we're going, to help, we're going to help disciple you and live life together so that you don't have a drink if you're an alcoholic. But we've become so caught up in the idea of orientation that the Bible never addresses. The Bible only talks about action. Let me also say this. Paul could have used any number of sins to illustrate the point that he's making. This whole idea of us trading our worship of the creator and pointing it back to ourselves and worshiping ourselves instead could have been illustrated in any number of ways. And I say that not to say that homosexuality is so bad that Paul uses that to illustrate it, but I say that to say that all sins are on equal ground. That all struggles are on equal ground. That all of us are broken. All of us need a savior. All of us need redemption. All of us need the strength of God. And so there are a lot of ways that each one of us have allowed our desires to get out of whack and then form our actions, which form our identity. And the wrath of God is playing out in our lives. So how do we respond as a church, as the church? Not this church, but the church. How are we collectively to respond? Well, classically, the response has been to elevate homosexuality as above other sins. And, and there, are, um, there are things that I like to call we sins and they sins. That is to say that you could walk into a church in North America with a we sin, right? I, I struggle with pride or greed or I lie or I, you know, have a dirty tongue and I, I just have a filthy mouth and all of these things. Like, those are we sins. Like, oh, one of those, come on in. Okay, let's, let's work on this together. But then there are some things in North American church that have turned into they sins. And that's like, and, and this is classically one of they sins. It's like, oh, you have that. You struggle with that. And all of a sudden, people don't know how to hold that. And they don't know what to do with that. And so they just reject that. And they say, oh, oh, if you're struggling with that, then, then you're not welcome here. And, no, and, and don't do that. And, and get away. And, 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 and oh, good night, we have children in the church. You know, and like we freak out. Because it's we and they. And what the Bible says over and over and over again 
is that all sin is we sin. We're all in the same boat. Your struggle may be distinct from my struggle, distinct from her struggle and his struggle, but guess what? We all struggle. We all need the Savior. We're all broken, and we all need the Savior to move that brokenness aside and turn it into something beautiful. We all need that. But what has happened is we have turned into an us and a they, a we and a mm-mm. And the result then has been the total alienation of anyone with they sins. Which actually affirms the lie in that person's life that they'll never be happy if they don't answer the attraction or the desire. If that desire is never fulfilled, if we alienate, if we create categories of they sin, they sins, and then we alienate people that we deem to have they sins, we have reaffirmed the lie in their life that they'll never be happy until they answer the struggle and the desire. Which, in effect, the church then ushers people in to a sinful lifestyle rather than ushering them in to the grace and goodness of God. Challenging, hey? That's one classic response. The other response has been, oh, you have same-sex attraction. No problem. Answer that. Fulfill that. Be happy. Be participate in homosexual acts and then like calls the church to 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 celebrate that lifestyle and so on one hand you have like a total alienation and on the other hand you have the church saying sort of the the degrading of the truth of god that the lifestyle of homosexuality is actually sinful and so it would, be, it would be the same as saying, boyfriend and girlfriend, go ahead and sleep together before marriage. That's no problem. Alcoholic, have a drink, all that you want. Really, it's Friday. Honestly, have fun. God loves you, and his grace is good. Right? And so it's communicated as grace, God's grace, rather than being the strength to live in victory over our struggles or the strength to live in victory despite our struggle, grace is turned into God just turning a blind eye and saying, oh, no big deal, Jesus died on the cross. That's not what the Bible says either. And so the two responses have been way over here. You're so dirty. Get out of here. You're not welcome. To way over here. Hey, man, there's nothing wrong. And the biblical response is somewhere right down the middle where we're saying to someone who has self-identified as homosexual or struggles with same-sex attraction, there is a place for you to worship here and we're going to provide for you a community and we're going to together depend on the strength of the Holy Spirit to, to live in victory over our struggles. I don't struggle in the same way you struggle, but guess what? We all struggle. We're all broken. Let's live this life together and anticipate the new creation that God is building right in the middle of this broken one. That's the, that's the path of scripture and it is the most difficult path to walk. 
Because both this camp and that camp are easy. Easy. It is far more difficult to live right in line with what Scripture calls us to and says, you know what? Let's all depend on God together. And so a new perspective would be would be this. We are all so prone to define our identity from our activity and our, and our desire is so driven by selfish, selfishness and selfish desires. And whatever the nature of our struggle, we are all just people in need of redemption. We are all broken. And let me say this to some degree as well. Not only are we all broken, but I would, I would want to suggest to you that to some degree all of us are sexually broken. That God sets as a standard of the perfect sexuality, sexuality and all of us fall short of that perfect standard as it relates to this area of our lives. He has created us to be sexual beings. He has given sex to us as a gift between a man and a woman inside of marriage to prepare us for what is coming, the true reality, the true intimacy that we'll experience in God's new world. All of these things are gifts to us, but the truth is all of us are broken in this area because there are many of you that, like, that you're heterosexual, right? And so, like, according to everything, you're, like, right in line, but you're having all kinds of casual sex, That is a brokenness sexually in need of redemption. And you need to depend on the Holy Spirit to give you strength, to give you a new virginity to save yourself for your wedding should you choose to be married. There are some of you here that are heterosexual couples happily married and one of you struggles with pornography. That is brokenness sexually. There are some of you here today that are heterosexual couple happily married but one of you is closed off sexually. And that also is a brokenness where you like refuse to express your sexuality, your God-given sexuality that he's given to you as a gift inside of the right context and you're hiding it, depressing it, suppressing it and, and not letting it come through. All of these things are brokenness in this particular area of our life. But for some reason, we tend to elevate. It's like, it's like this is okay but then if you add the layer of, I also struggle with same-sex attraction, all of a sudden it becomes not okay. We, we, we just need to realize that all of us, what I'm, the point I'm trying to get across is we all need Jesus, right? And like, and Jesus is here for all of us. And Jesus is the savior of all of us if we'll call on him by faith. And we can depend on his Holy Spirit to strengthen us. And so culture is going to do what it's going to do, right? For a long time and for a while, cultural, the, the cultural norm was homosexuality is, is wrong and it's illegal and it's all of this. And right now there's a shift in our culture. And the, the culture is accepting homosexuality. And it's legalizing marriage between, between gay couples, all of this kind of stuff. But listen, church, Whatever happens in the political climate and whatever happens in culture related to this issue or any other issue, the mission of the church doesn't change and hasn't changed. And God has, has promised to protect his church. 
And so all hell could be breaking loose in culture. But God has promised to protect his church. And the mission of the church will forever be the same. Proclaim the good news to broken people. And guess what? We're all broken. And we need good news. Oh, I thought for sure one of you would say amen to that. So, what does this mean directly for how the church should respond to those with same-sex attraction and homosexuality? I'm making a very thin distinction between those two. If I say there is a homosexual, I am assuming that person is acting out and and participating in homosexual acts. Someone with same-sex attraction... I would place in it that has that attraction but is not acting on that desire and is depending on the power of the Lord in their life to, to keep them from that and to live a celibate lifestyle. That's the distinction I'm making in this, in this message. And so how should the church directly respond to those with same-sex attraction? We should welcome them in our community. We should spur one another on toward righteous living. And uh, notice I did not say that we should spur them on toward righteous living. We should spur each other on toward righteous living. Because guess what? They, that person has something to offer you in the same way that you have something to offer them. We have something to offer to one another that would help us all live more righteously. And so, folks with same-sex attraction should be welcomed, should be given a space to spur one another on toward righteous living, and be provided with a community that is like family for the single person. And... uh, Going back to the ideas that we shared last week where we tend to think differently of other people that are different from us, one thing I didn't mention last week is that we do this inside the church. And so it's like if, if they're in a different stage of life or if they're a little bit older, a little bit younger or whatever, like we tend to group ourselves in the church with people that are exactly like us. So we make about the same money. We uh, have kids or aspire to have kids. We're married. We're same age group, all of this kind of stuff. And then... And uh, I, I really feel like that one thing this church could work specifically on is, is crossing those lines a little more. And, and really welcoming folks who aren't exactly like you in, according to every metric that we would come up with. And, and really saying to someone who's a few more years down the road, would you join us? Because you have wisdom to share with us. And saying to the, to the single person, let's, let's relate to each other as people, not just relate to each other based on what we have in common, which that's what we tend to do. Like we, we, we only like to relate to people based on what they have in common with us so that when we get together, we can talk about all our commonalities. 
Like, oh, man, how do you get your child to sleep at night, honestly, you know? And so it's like, it's just like we, we kind of like talk about all these things that we have in common. And, and, and I, I really feel like the Lord is calling us to a level of community. That's good and that's healthy. And moms, you need to talk with other moms about how to get the baby to sleep at night. That is good, God-honoring community. But is there space to relate to people on a level deeper than that? So that you're relating as a married person with kids to a single person, no kids. As a single person to a married couple. As we're relating to each other as people. Not just people who are exactly the same. Because until we can learn that, there'll be no space for someone struggling with this issue to really find a family. Because... If someone struggles with same-sex attraction and by, by virtue of the word of God is being called to a celibate and single lifestyle, they need a family. And the church is to be that family. It's a high calling. It's a high calling. Well, one more thought and then I'm done. We need a brand new way of seeing who we are, right? Because our desires can't always be trusted. And so what I have suggested to you is that we would have, that this is our cultural identity, desire, activity, and then identity. What I want to suggest to you, the Bible says, is this, that that we begin with our identity. And our identity informs our desires. And then our identity, which informs our desires, then leads to activity. This is the gospel way of of viewing things. We begin with our identity in Christ. Who am I in Christ? Well, in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then the Bible says that you are a new creation. Then the Bible says that you are loved by God, that you are a child of God, that you are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible has all kinds of wonderful things to say about who you are in Christ. If we begin with that identity, then what the Bible says is that our desires will change. That there's a heart change. That there's something fundamentally that changes about us. Now that doesn't mean that we'll always have perfect desires or healthy desires or that our desires will always be in line with God. But fundamentally as we walk with him, we learn more and more what God desires and it becomes our desires. That's the matching of God's heart and my heart as we walk with Christ. And then that identity, because my, my, my desires have changed, my activity is fundamentally different. This is what we all need because Paul could have said, he says, it is your desires. The wrath of God is I'm going to give you over to your desires that can't be trusted. But Paul then says, because of your faith in Christ and because your identity has changed, so also your desires will change. And the Bible uses all kinds of illustrations to talk about this, like putting to death the old and putting on the new or being baptized, like, like being put to death your sin and then being raised to new life in Christ. There's all kinds of illustrations for this very truth. But listen to me, I don't know what your struggle is today. But a key to overcoming that struggle 
is to realize that your identity is in Christ. And it's your identity that forms your desires, that something fundamentally changes in your heart. And then that leads to activity. Let me read to you Colossians chapter 3, the first 17 verses, and then I'm done. And the band's going to come and sing. And we're going to sing and celebrate new life in Christ together. It says this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden in God. That's a way of saying your identity is now in Christ. Your life is hidden in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Does this sound familiar? You used to walk in these ways. You used to walk in these ways, in the life that you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to one another, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. For there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And all of these, vir- and all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And then he kind of closes it by saying this. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. We are new creations in Christ. And Paul in this passage is saying, as you've hidden your life in God through faith, you've been given a new identity, which means you've put aside all of these ways of life that belonged to your old self, and then now you want to clothe yourselves with all of these new ways of life according to your new identity. Whatever your struggle is today, we all need this truth. We all need to hear this good news. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.